Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Scaffold, a new podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the graphic designer, Fraser Mugridge. Fraser founded the Typography Summer School, a week-long program of typographic study held in London and New York. He teaches in the MA Book Design course at the University of Reading, as well as graphic design at Camberwell College of Art in London. I met with Fraser at his studio in Bethnal Green, where we talked about his collaboration with artists and the role he often plays as the fabricator of their typographic work. We also talked about the influence of the Dutch typographer and museum curator, Willem Sandberg, the embedded emotion in graphic design, and the spectrum of Muggeridge's work from his restrained and nearly boring typographic projects to his warmer and unruly recent work, where text and image begin to merge. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. born in uh, Luton, which is uh, about 30 miles north of London. Um, it's known now for a really horrible airport called Luton Airport, which you might have uh, travelled from EasyJet. <laughs> Near, I was born in uh, Luton, but I grew up in, a, in the adjacent town to Luton, which is called Dunstable. When I was very young, my, my mother asked me if I wanted to kind of like, a, you know, learn uh, play a musical instrument or go to judo or you know do something that kids do and I said I wanted to learn calligraphy so she arranged for the calligraphy teacher a calligraphy teacher in Dunstable to come round and give me lessons in lettering and even then I sort of knew I wanted to be a graphic designer at an early age so I used to love drawing logos um, you know, Nike logos and Puma logos and copying lettering. And I always wondered what uh, a graphic designer could be and could do. You used to see them on TV adverts. Uh, no, on the end of TV credits, mm -hmm. you always used to see graphic designer. And I used to always look at it and go, wow, that could be me one day. <laughs> and you studied at... Um University of Reading. Yes. Typography and graphic, graphic communication. communication. Yeah. So that at the time, so I studied there from 91 to 95. And at the time, that was the only, so the UK had a, had a system of polytechnics and universities mm -hmm. at the time. So Reading uh, was the only university that you could study typography at. So I l literally looked in the back of the university all the university's book and I looked up graphic design typography and there was one place to do it mm. and I applied there so that was the reason really for going there because it, it was the actual only place to go obviously I could have gone to an art school I could have gone down the polytechnic route and done a foundation course um, but that, you know at the time it was always about you know I don't know going to university seemed much more uh, prestigious than, than not and what kind of teachers were there? There's this guy, James Mosley. James Mosley. Who you mentioned. Yeah. Um, in another interview or talk yeah. you gave. Yeah. Could you talk a bit about Mosley and other teachers who uh, had an impact on, on your education and your thinking about graphic design? James Mosley was the librarian at a place called the St. Bride's Printing Library, which is in London. And he would only come, because he had a full-time job of being the librarian of this type, type library, he would only come on Saturday mornings. So we had to get up on the third year 
Saturday mornings to go to his lectures on, you know, the letter E in 15th century Renaissance Rome, which at the time... That sounds amazing. Yeah, at the time when you're 21, <laughs> you felt like... I, I did actually go to all the lectures. At the time, it was almost the challenge of like, could you stay up all night? Could you go to a party, obviously have fun, mm-hmm. uh, drink a lot of alcohol and still go to James Mosley lecture and get through it? And... <laughs> And, and sometimes, obviously, they became quite trippy because you'd go in various states in the morning. But it was only in the third year for, for a whole term we, we had him talking about letter forms. Uh, but Reading was a very special place, still is a very special place. I teach there now. Um, it feels like a family. You know, I'm, still, I'm, I'm very grateful to have been there and still continue to teach there. Um, and I suppose I got an all-round education of the history of letter forms history of design, the theory, legibility, uh, and practical. Uh, so, and, 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 you know, learning about what printing is, so that even they even have, or they still have today, they have a print department in the, uh, in the department that, obviously now it's digital printing, but they still have, you know, some letterpress staff, and there they have litho presses, so you would be able to understand what printing was just by, walking through the department and hearing the machines going and like this seems like it or it sounds like it's a, it was at the time a relatively new discipline if this was the only place in the uk that was offering a program i think it was the only university so at the time there were polytechnics mm-hmm. so there would be you know st martin's was a polytechnic uh, you know, Campbell was a polytechnic, you know, many, many, many polytechnics offering typography within an art school context. So this right. was offering it as a kind of academic university study. Okay. So uh, it was a kind of new, you know, design. I'm not sure when the first design course was. Maybe, obviously, Bauhaus was part of that whole thing. Um, but there were graphic design courses at uh, Central St. Martin's, you know, in the 50s, very famous one. So it wasn't, the, definitely wasn't the first. But, but as a kind of academic, intellectualized pursuit. I think so. Okay. And you were drawn more to that than to the polytechnic system because... I think, you know, to be honest, I, if I'm really honest, I just remember that my two sisters went to university and the thought of me going to a poly would be a failure. Uh-huh. in my head I don't think anyone ever said that to me hmm. but you obviously compare yourself to your peers so I I, I definitely had that not pressure but I I, I would have uh, I don't know there was that stigma between polytechnics and universities and maybe then five years later that then whole system changed so now there's no such thing as a polytechnic you wouldn't know what a polytechnic was right I would know. What yeah. It, yeah, well, it's like I a technical college. Exactly. And then they all became, or they, 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 they went through this process of becoming universities. Mm-hmm. So now there's, now you can do graphic design at probably, I don't know, but lots of universities. It's, it's uh, you know, it's a big thing now. And then after school, you didn't set out immediately on your own. No, no. So... Um, so after school, after, after I graduated in 95, I uh, did a few little things. I worked in advertising for six months. Um, I, I also, you know, was always curious about traveling. So I sort of did my sort of time on a kibbutz in Israel. I did my time traveling in uh, India. And I came back and I did for a moment think... I've actually kind of missed the boat because all my friends had got jobs Mm. and I hadn't got a job. And uh, it took me quite a while to actually find somewhere to work. It took me about, I was actually on the dole for maybe nine months Mm. at home. Um, But I eventually got a job uh, with uh, an amazing person called Sarah Chapman, who was also uh, a Reading graduate from maybe four or five years before. Uh, a little studio called The Letter G, which was in Clerkenwell in London. And I worked for her for uh, three years, uh, learning. And the work we used to do was uh, really working for charities. But I learned so much about what an actual graphic designer is, how to actually 
start a job, what happens if the client says, I don't like it? How do you deal with that? What, uh, what's a print order? How to answer the phone? <laughs> what's an invoice? <laughs> uh, what, you know, what, how do you order stationery or, I don't know, what happens if your Mac dies? Right, just the, the kind of everyday practicalities yeah, of but, running an office. But also running a very small studio because it was just me and her, essentially. Okay. So I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sort of forever grateful to Sarah for that, that kind of uh, opportunity. When you left, where did you go? So the, uh, what happened was that Sarah, um, she, she had, uh, she had a, a child and I kind of manned the studio for a few months and then she came back and then she had another child and she... She kind of obviously got to a point having two kids running a studio and managing me quite yeah. hard. <laughs> and that time I was probably quite, you know, I was sort of moved up the ranks. So I was a bit more uh, senior, so to speak. So I was probably maybe more of a handful to manage because I was, had a bit more attitude. Mm. Uh, so she actually, we actually, she actually closed, she closed the studio for a year, took a year out. So in theory, I was kind of made redundant. So I was sort of. I obviously always wanted to run my own studio, my own practice, but I often you always have a vision of doing it, but you never make that jump. Yeah. Because you're always like, well, uh, grass, you know, I'm kind of comfortable here and it's okay. So I was kind of almost, uh, almost forced upon me, in a way, uh, to to uh, to start something. And so you did, right, in 1998? Is that when? No, it was no. in 2000. It was in 2000 and. It was in 2000. Okay. I'm a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> millennial designer. And what was that like, jumping, jumping into that kind of unknown? Well, it was, you know, actually, I did work. A friend of mine, I got a job very part time at another design studio called Jeffrey Design with Sally Jeffrey. Uh, just for six months, just because, you know, I felt, you know, at that time I needed to pay the rent. So I had a kind of two-day-a-week job with them. And I literally had one job, which I, which was with a publishing company called 21 Publishing, which used to share a studio with us. Mm. We were called The Letter G. And there was one job called Art Crazy Nation with uh, Matthew Collins was the writer. And that was my only job I had to do that was my first ever job and then I wrote letters I wrote I think 120 letters to all the art galleries and art institutions that I wanted to work for in London okay probably got about four replies and I got one job from that which is uh, a book was a book for Art Angel by Jem Finer about long called long player so that's that was the kind of catalyst it's just over there on that shelf, actually. Um, that was the kind of catalyst where everything has kind of sprung from. And I guess this is where it starts to get more specific because yeah. you're reaching out to particular potential sure. clients, artists or artist institutions. Yeah. And why was that? Um, that's a good question, actually. I think I like the idea of my work could suit artists' work. Because I felt at the time that the sort of invisibility of a designer to just sort of showcase the work. You know, I used to love looking at an art catalogue where there was like nothing on the page apart from one picture, mm. like a painting or a sculpture, mm. just with a really small caption that would be beautifully typeset. As opposed to, you know, you say I could have gone anywhere, I could have, you know, I don't know, gone a bit and worked for a you know, bank or something and done graphic design for banks or something which would be something different so I definitely felt that my w approach or what I wanted to do was this kind of beautiful um, work that traditionally you know over time you know many great graphic designers over the years have worked in that world you know from Jan Chicole, Max Bill, Vim Crowell have all kind of produced art catalogues. William Sandberg, who's one of my big heroes, made art catalogues. So I kind of probably thought, well, I'll try and do the same. Why don't we actually talk about Sandberg now? Yeah. Can you give a breakdown of Sandberg and his work for people who might not be familiar? With 
so Sandberg was uh, he was essentially the director of the Stadlick from I think forty five to sixty two, memory serves me right, and he was also the graphic designer. So that's kind of like a sort of really strange combination. It's like kind of Nick Sorota being the director of the Tate and being the graphic designer, <laughs> sort of unheard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his I suppose his whole thing was this notion of uh, warm printing. So he would uh, often use cheap materials that wrapping paper, uncoated paper, brown paper, um, textured paper that would be would be not really used for art catalogues that generally would have been quite fancy and coated and glossy. Uh, he talked about tearing. He, he developed, you can see there's the Stalick 1957 mm. uh, greetings card, moving card, a uh, New Year's card. So he tore paper, uh, he used his hands. Um, and, you know, he, he, he worked with many artists. He also had a lot to say about art, he had a lot to say about bringing people into art galleries. He had a lot to say about uh, changing the Stadlick from uh, when he turned up it was a gloomy place with colour everywhere on the walls and he painted all the walls and he installed a, a cafe and he set up an education programme and so a lot of the stuff he did wasn't necessarily just to do with the design uh, but he made these really bold posters these typographic posters I don't know there's just something about the, the work that is a bit, it's not as uh, rigid and kind of like a total design or gritty mm-hmm. as maybe someone like Müller Brookman from Switzerland or yeah. from Wim Krau who, who preceded him. Uh, it's, got, it's got a kind of a bit more, uh, a bit more soul, a bit more warmth. So that's my yeah, fascination with Sandberg. It seems like too that his, the social project that he was embarking on in transforming the museum into a more public and uh, accessible and, I don't know, democratic space or something. You could start to think that maybe there is an aesthetic tied to that and that maybe the work, the graphic design work he did somehow relates to that attitude. Yeah, I think so. It's the same also with Jan van Torn, who's a really great Dutch designer. They have the sort of, you know, similar, I suppose it's a sort of like slight... I I imagine that Sandberg would have been so busy that a lot of his work would have been done with sketching and and sort of almost half specifying. So he wasn't like maybe other designers would be a kind of total control freak and like this is it's got to be like this. Sandberg would have probably been a bit more open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. So things were a little bit more loose, a bit more casual. You know, he created a whole system within the Stalic that wasn't a kind of fixed graphic identity but he definitely created a a graphic identity through just you know kind of his work so these ideas were with you during school actually yeah you said you did your thesis project on yeah uh, sandberg yeah i suppose it had a big effect on me but i didn't really come back to sandberg until maybe two years ago when i organized or co-organized a show with the stadlick at uh, the delaware which was you know really amazing to do what was that like revisiting this figure that was pretty influential in your education? Were you seeing different things or uh, rediscovering elements you'd forgotten? I suppose what I discovered discovered more about his, you know, when I was a student, I was very blinkered to thinking about his design. Mm-hmm. But there's been a lot more talking about his, you know, views on uh, curating and 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 art in the 20th century. So I learned a lot more about that, really. at Modern Art in Oxford yes. last summer. And you kind of laid out 
your agenda in a way, beginning with this idea of emotion and feeling, uh, which I hope we can try and unpack a little bit. But then all these kind of tenets that uh, um, included you know, elements like scale, well, color. Yeah, well, you started with this idea of nearly boring yeah. arrangement, picture puzzle, pastiche, mix, subtlety, pattern. You kind of, you're laying out uh, the structure within which you work. Yeah. But at the top of that list, the umbrella for all those terms is this idea of emotion. Yeah. And I mean, you got away with it because it was lecture and no one can really probe in the moment. <laughs> but I actually didn't fully understand what you meant by that, except when you showed the word emotion on the screen. Okay. In this very bizarre typeface, <laughs> which I'd never seen before. Okay. Um, can you just respond to that? I don't know where to go, but I think that... Yeah, I, I suppose it's what I mean. I, a few people say that they don't understand. I think what, what they don't understand, or what I don't understand, is the, real, is the real meaning of the word emotion. So when I talk about emotion of graphic design, I think like when you look at something, you look at that thing, for the first thing that you think of, you think of something. And to me, I'm calling that an emotion. So you look at, you look at, uh, I don't know, you look at that and you think that reminds you of something. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, you know, is it modern? Is it old? Is it contemporary? Mm -hmm. What's its references? Mm -hmm. what's, what's the feeling that comes into your head when you think about that? And, and, and that's what I mean by emotion. So, so it kind of, it makes you think of things. So I think of graphic design as that. Mm. And, and then the tools or the, the methods or the uh, methodology, some people might say, to create those emotions might be through an, a certain arrangement or a certain scale or a certain color or a certain typeface or a certain, you know, making something in, intentionally confusing so like a picture puzzle so people have to think about it so that's what i mean by emotion and it's probably not the right word because you're not the first person to tell me that <laughs> but, but it felt i call it emotion and yeah. I, I think maybe that's just my understanding of it it felt like you'd set up some weird echo chamber when you put the word on the screen in this in this this kind of alien but familiar typeface mm. Uh, something weird was going on there. What was that typeface and why did you choose it to convey this idea, this abstract idea of emotion? I think it was uh, kind of leading on to another, another idea that I have that maybe we can talk about. You know, I'm always, I'm always trying to create typefaces that are a little bit wrong, that are a little bit off, that are a little bit, uh, you know, I call it, you know, knowingly wrong is, mm. is how I so often describe my work now as, as this, is this emotion where it's a bit off. And, and the reason I do that is so some people look at it and they go, yeah, there's something wrong with that font or, but I don't know what. Whereas now I kind of feel that we're in a world of, uh, you know, we're in a world where it's actually quite easy for graphic designers and non-graphic designers to create a piece of communication that kind of looks all right. You know, we are in a world of software, InDesign, uh, web design software. It's really great. This is the tyranny of the template that yeah, you mentioned before. Yeah, the tyranny of the template and, and actually the fact that, that actually those tools are really good now. So when I first started, st um, even practicing graphic design in, you know, my own studio in 2000 and 2000 the challenge was just to make something look good because you know you had clunky software you had limited fonts you barely had the internet and printing was bad images were bad you used to have slides that used to be scanned in they were all blurred and full of like hair <laughs> and everything was was like that and so I really did try for maybe, you know, seven or eight years to just make good quality books and printed matter. And then I've achieved that. And I feel that, that now that 
is very achievable. Like basically you could do that with a bit of visual awareness and a bit of InDesign, you know, kind of uh, help. Uh, you could achieve something not bad, I, I, I would imagine. Something competent. Something competent that would look, but for me now, that is now the benchmark has just got a lot higher. So I, I, I've had to think about, well, I've done that. I can make something look good. I can do good typesetting. I know about fonts. Uh, also, type design has got so good now. So many new typefaces every day, and they're so good. And now the kind of... But I often feel that the, the soul of them or the, the sheen of them is so machined that I, I find it hard to use them because they're too good. So I'm still using, majority of the case, not always the case, uh, typefaces that, that, aren't, that aren't necessarily um, brand new. Because if you use a new font and you put a new font, you put it into InDesign, you don't really have to do much. Whereas if you've got a font that's got a few problems, you don't have to respace it. You have to change a few characters. You have to work harder. So I often do that. I sort of work really hard to make something look nearly normal. Whereas I could just put a new font in and it would look normal. Right. So speaking of methodology, there's this idea of like producing obstacles for yourself. Yeah. In order to um, make the end result uh, m more satisfying. Yeah. But also... Um, Less certain? Yeah, less. What I try and do now is I try and create parameters that make decisions that aren't based purely on aesthetics. So I might design something or design a book in a system that would create layouts or arrangements that I normally wouldn't do. So that's a way of, of creating a new duck because otherwise you just move your mouse around forever deciding on a nice arrangement and mm -hmm. I think that's quite easy to do now. Let's talk about Mimeographica Alphabetica. Yes. I feel like this project is relevant to the tangent we're following yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, so this was a project that you did for the Whitechapel Art Gallery in yeah. 2014. Yeah. I was asked uh, by the Whitechapel for really by their educational department to uh, they have a, a really nice program uh, that they invite artists to work with the local community, and that could be either you know adult groups or uh, school children to create workshops to make work, and then to somehow have some form of presentation of that, whether that's an exhibition or a display of their work or work resulting from that work and um, at the time I was just really I was really uh, going through a sort of stage of kind of DIY printing and I was really curious about about uh, again I think it's this idea of you know you could print something on your computer or print something digitally and it comes back and it's kind of all right I was interested in you know historically printing uh, printing machines that that were printed in a different way. Uh, there was also the rise of the, the kind of Rizzo printing, which was a kind of high high speed uh, cross between a kind of screen printer and a photocopier. And um, I kind of wanted to combine that idea because it uses this idea of a stencil with stencil lettering, which is obviously typography. So I kind of, put all those, those two or three ideas together, worked with uh, a series of workshops. It's really kind of more like the kind of backbone to the project. Actually, the work that we made with the students, we didn't show. Oh, really? But it became more of a kind of, of, a, of, of a kind of catalyst for making the work. So, so the workshop was a kind of test for printing and what's possible. You said elsewhere that for you, graphic design history is very much linked to the history of technology. Yeah, sure. What was possible at the time, how things were made and produced. Yeah. But 
in that instance you know, of this project at the Whitechapel, you're looking back to an earlier technology yeah, yeah. to rediscover certain accidents that are no yeah, longer possible. Exactly. Totally. But what accidents are possible with today's technology? Uh, well, I have done a few projects uh, using technology today. A project I've done uh, is a project using um, a software that comes with a uh, robot uh, printer, uh, a watercolor robot called a watercolor bot. Okay. It's invented by someone in America called Sylvia. She invented it when she was 12. And it draws, it's like an XY plotter. So you put in a vector and it draws your shape. Mm -hmm. And I've done a few experiments where the software that it gives you, uh, when you put in a JPEG, say I put in a JPEG of my face, it rather than auto-tracing it, in like an illustrator where it just creates lines, it tries to create a path that it would do in one continuous line with a brush. And that then, when you do it again, when you press do it again, it creates a different path. So I've done some experiments and made a few fonts where I've put in a letter. I've put in an A or a B. And the software's drawn a path to draw the A or the B, and it's always drawn it in a different way. And then you can save that as a vector, make it into a typeface. So again, I'm using... Uh, Today's technology, you know, we've done a, a, a recent uh, project. I do a lot of projects involving uh, offset litho. So offset litho is the most common form of printing even now. But I'm doing projects where I'm doing, uh, I'm, I'm trying to design on the press. So I don't go to the press with a preconceived idea and say design this. I go with nothing. And I, I, I try and create images on the press using manual techniques of you know putting ink in or squirting water in but that's all using today's technology so it's not the past it's actually still the the technologies that's used to kind of make books even today mm. it's this kind of process that seems to um, characterize a lot of the work you do where you're going in and not knowing What's really going what's going to happen yeah um yeah. the way you like it's uh, this question of like how can an image or this these are your words not mine yeah. how can an image or design be created without a premeditated idea of what uh, that might be this is part of the DACA arts yeah that's right yeah and i mean it's it's such a thrilling question to ask and it's it's such a exciting way of working but also when you're running a business, how do you cut cut things off, or how do you how do you conclude, how do you kind of ration your time, if it's about endless and and uh, unknowing exploration? Uh, because actually, that 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 exploration can actually result in aesthetic forms, and actually, it can be quicker. Mm. And I'm not going into it. So say, for example, how can a, you know, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I'm sort of going into the hole. I'm going into a print press or uh, some software, but I'm going in knowing kind of a knowledge of a, you know, maybe aesthetics or a certain aesthetic. And B, I'm going into a knowledge of what that technology can do. So, you know, for example, I'm very, uh, you know, for me, it's really important that a graphic designer knows about printing because then you can say, hey, well, why don't we turn off the water or why don't we swap the plates or why don't we uh, delete that? And so, so I'm going into, I'm not going into it completely blind into just a hole where I'm just going to go into a deep hole and never come out. So for me... I actually find it really much quicker as a way of generating uh, 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 an idea. I find it very hard to come up with an idea when people say, come up with an idea. 
find that really hard. So for me, it's a way of generating some, it's either like some content or it's a way of generating some sort of boundaries that I can sort of use and filter in, 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 in our work. And I actually don't find it, I don't find it, um, uh, takes longer. I, f I find it takes shorter because I think sometimes, you know, I do a lot of teaching and I often see a lot of students like looking at a screen and just moving stuff around. And mm -hmm. I'm like, how do you know when to stop? Or how do you know when, and they're like, oh, when it looks good or when I run out of time or, and for me, I, I, I I want to have some sort of boundaries where through knowledge, so my, my, my approach to design might actually just be, uh, I think a friend of mine, I went to a talk, we do a lot of work with uh, Sam Jacobs Studio, mm -hmm. who's a brilliant architect, and he gave a talk and he was talking about design objects. And he was saying, actually, you know, design is embedded knowledge which I thought was really interesting. So there's so much like history in a piece of design. Mm. And if you understand that history or you understand what history or what knowledge is, actually design can be quite easy. So it's the same with graphic design. If you can understand where a typeface is from, how a printing machine works, uh, how you can uh, create variation in design through machines, then I'm not saying it's easy, but it, it, it can give you something to kind of cling on to as opposed to just like, well, what's it going to look like? I find that really difficult. I think an example of that idea of design is embedded knowledge comes through in a particular poem that you're fascinated with. Mm -hmm. The square poem. Oh, yeah, the square poem. Bob Cobbing. Yeah. Um, where you've, in the past, when you've given talks, yeah, you've presented this poem which is a poem about a square yeah which happens to be shaped like a square yeah and you've kind of unpacked um what's embedded in that expression and what you've said is that it's a poem yeah um it's also language um and then it's also an object or an image and that this is a kind of holy trinity for yeah, yeah. good design or good graphic design at least um, it's nice. I, I'm always drawn when, when a design can do more than one thing, mm -hmm. and that's great because it does three things. So I'm always trying to look for design doing two things, you know, which is a bit like the picture puzzle, mm -hmm. you know, because I think actually, you know, and, and it comes back to this idea of emotion. So it's doing two things. So so people can say, oh, I really like the way that it does that, but actually someone else can see it in a different light because you don't know how someone's going to read it. Mm -hmm. So multiple readings of the same object, to me, gives, as long as it's not confusing or conflicting, to me gives, it's like a sense of imagination. It's a bit like maybe when you're, you know, the difference between, you know, reading a book and watching, a t watching it on TV. You're reading it on your book. Not that I read a lot of books, so I would, <laughs> I would say your your imagination is a bit more wild like what does what does this person look like or what's the car he's driving or you know what's he wearing whereas if you see it on the screen you're just like well there it is so i think graphic design that can give you a little bit of oh it looks a bit like this or that for different people is really uh to me that's the kind of yeah like the holy the holy trinity and you know i've always I love that Bob Cobbin thing because it, it, to me it does three things and that's why it's... And also the other reason I really like it is that it kind of breaks the rule of typography with these rivers of white coming mm. in. You know, actually it's, it's wrong as well. So it actually looks, from a typographical point of view and a typesetting point of view, you would be thrown out for doing that. But he's done that because he wants to make it square. So he's making it an image is forcing it into a visual form and you know that's maybe is the difference between you know the reason I like Bob Cobbing is because yeah he's an artist working in graphic design so I'm drawn to those kind of people yes very much so so the artists that you do work with tend to be drawn towards type and text yeah I mean let's talk about Jeremy Deller 
Yeah. And um, how you first started to work with him yeah. and the kind of creative relationship that you have with him now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we first started working, I started working with him, which was really in the Venice Biennale catalogue, 2013, which really was a quite a straightforward catalogue, as in, you know, I wasn't inputting too much on, you know, content, it was all Jeremy's ideas, it was his, he's a brilliant artist, and my job was to make a nice catalogue. And then since that, you know, I guess I guess we've become, uh, you know, the graphic maybe a graphic output for for Jeremy's, you know, um, prints, his text pieces, uh, and you know, a lot of artists work with uh, production, either production people or fabricators, and we're, you know, and mm. I often see in my work with mm. other artists with every artist as a kind of we're kind of graphic design fabricators of mm. their work we're not hey you know give us all your material and we'll do our work with it we're, we're trying to fabricate their work katie patterson is a very different artist that we work with very everything's very minimal and white fiona banner something that we work a lot with and they all they all have a slightly different treatment because we are essentially packaging giving across a feeling and sometimes the work can be in a kind of graphic form or sometimes, you know, with Fiona, with Jeremy, with Katie, with other people, it is the work. So it kind of goes into, uh, go, it's more than just the publication or more than just the poster. The poster is the work, you know, so it kind mm -hmm. of gets all of it kind of mixed up, crossover. Yeah. I want to talk, I want to compare two different artist projects yep. that you've worked on. Yeah. Um, they kind of stand in stark contrast to each other that also seem to embody ideas that you have promoted as guiding your practice. Um, so one is About 60 Miles of Beautiful Views yep. by Anna Barabel. Anna Barabel. Yeah. Um, which was a series of posters displayed in the tube, the underground in London yep. in 2008. Yep. Um, and then the other is... Shanky, yeah, the aesthetics of awkwardness, yeah, by John Walter, yeah, which uh, took place in two thousand seventeen, yeah, traveling exhibition. So very different visually. Very different visually, but also like I was speaking with a friend of yours or a um, colleague of yours, Mark El Khatib, on the weekend. Oh yeah, and uh, he said those two were both very Frasery projects, mm. but in fact these are projects that originated through different people, different artists sure. that you were just having a hand in delivering. Yeah. So like, where, where is that line? Because um, the project with Anna Barabal, this is an idea about um, the nearly boring. Yeah, so, so that project was, was really, uh, was, 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 the project was a poster project on the tube, on, on London Underground, part of Lon Art on the Underground. And it was, fabrication of Anna's artwork so it wasn't a poster that advertised her her artwork the posters that said um, about 60 miles of beautiful views or um, oh boy what a wonderful city were found phrases on the back of uh, back of postcards or photos that Anna had found she she brought them to the studio and she says here's my work this these are my texts and our job was to package that and you know we did try all sorts of fonts all sorts of approaches and colors and we kind of came to this point where you know I worked very closely with Anna on it and we came to this point where actually there was a cut off Johnston which is the underground typeface uh, New Johnston or Johnston I can't remember which one they were using at the time which is a really amazing font. It's one of the first ever kind of corporate fonts or commissioned fonts, commissioned by Frank Pick in 1913. Uh, and it's, it was, it was you know, still used today, so it's very London, right? It's still very recognisable. And I just kind of like looked at it and I, and I really studied the, the book version of it had these amazing kind of commas 
and claws and even the full stop and the dot on the eye were kind of these diamond shapes. Yeah. And, and, and that's because it comes from calligraphy, comes from writing. He wrote a book called Writing, Illuminating and Lettering. And all I did was just blow that up really big on a poster. And, uh, you know, I kind of set it as if, almost as if no one had set it. Just the person on the desk at London Underground just typed it in. But then I set it so crafted that, that all those letters beautifully spaced and leading and, you know, and it just looked sort of beautifully done, but all at the same time really boring. So that was a, a project where they looked really plain. And in a way I was, my job was to be really invisible. And, but I was essentially making the work because the poster wasn't a poster for the work, the poster was the work. And Shonky, which was last year, 2017, again, was a similar brief. Uh, this was a touring show uh, curated by John Walter. And his brief to me was, I want the catalogue to be an extent, you are an artist in the show. And your catalogue is an extension of the ideas of the show. And, uh, you know, John, who, who I hadn't met before, you know, was even more outlandingly bright clothes than me. <laughs> when I, you know, I was like, you must be John. And he was wearing a luminous pink and yellow <laughs> shorts or something. And I was, he was like, you must be Fraser because I was wearing... So we always... So he, he had, you know, he very much had this vision that he wanted the, the, the catalogue to be an extension of the show. And the show was about Shonky. It was about everything off on one edge and the work was very bright. The work was, you know, Shonky. And you know, we made a, a series of typefaces that uh, are barely legible, that are very Shonky. The whole graphic identity was also like the the extra element to the show um but it was very much in contrast to and it's probably why you've chosen those two to look at it visually it's completely like you've got to get your sunglasses out mm -hmm. because it's so bright and everything's full up and and it's very uh aesthetically maybe ugly it looks very kind of horrible you mentioned this idea of like doing work that is knowingly wrong. yeah yeah, sure. Knowingly wrong. Yeah, it's um, like that. It's like that. Yeah. Whereas this other idea that you've um, talked a lot about is um, the, the work is nearly boring. Yeah. And so these two projects took place at different points in time. Yeah. Has there been some kind of change? change? Uh, yeah, I think so. There's been a few changes and I'm, I'm sort of figuring out why that's happened. I think you know, one of the reasons is because... I think that it's now relatively easy, like I mentioned before, for someone to have a basic software can do something that looks okay. So I've got to either make it really good, really shiny, really perfect, or I've got to make it a bit off or a bit, you know, ugly or knowingly wrong or uh, a bit like that. I think that's maybe the, the main reason. And I think it's also, it's a journey of life, isn't it? So you do, you know, we are literally on job number 1,821 or something. So we've done a lot of catalogues and a lot of books as a studio. So I, I definitely sometimes get to the point where, you know, I, I now feel that any catalogue that comes to the studio, I want it to be not a catalogue. I want it to be a, a series of posters or, you know, with the shonky thing, it's, it's definitely not oh, I want you to make a catalogue. I, I sort of almost want to do an anti-catalogue. So I, I guess it's experience, it's maybe confidence, and it's sort of having a kind of... Uh, um, having the kind of denounce to do it or to suggest it. You know, it's interesting for me to, to uh, continue this kind of exploration to see where, to see where it can go and to see... Um, what I can get away with. And I definitely think it's getting a bit more expressive. Say up until maybe, up until three or four years ago, I would always solve everything 
typographically. So any project I had, so even, you know, the projects you talk about, typographic would be the forefront, would be the kind of solution to everything or would be very much involved in everything. It's still very much involved in everything, but definitely now, through experiments with manual offset printing, through um, being much more confident now with the images. So images and graphics are becoming actually more important than type. So this kind of merger of type and image is used to be type was the king and image was like, oh, I don't know what to do with images. I just get given images and put them in a box. Now I'm a bit like, let's, let's make images. So that's, I think that's a change, sort of a gradual change, just confidence of images, mm. which I did, definitely did not have for a long time. Because mm -hmm. I wasn't, you know, I didn't know about images, didn't know what they meant, didn't know what they said. Does this have anything to do with the fact that the culture now is becoming more visually literate? Yeah. Yeah. We all know how to read images to a certain extent in a way that maybe we didn't before. Yeah. Uh, I think so. I think, I think people are not necessarily more, um, you know, the idea of using, using emojis, but more like the idea of, of everyone knows what typography is now. So if you'd ask someone 20 years ago, the typography, they think, well, is that cartography? <laughs> you know, or, but now that everyone knows what typography is, and, you know, it's through visual culture, it's through, um, you know, it's through the Mac, the visual, you know, interface of the Mac. It's through, uh, you know, films like Helvetica. Mm -hmm. It's through... Uh, books like Just My Type, you know, I literally have started collecting, which is my new project. I've started collecting uh, establishments that aren't to do with design that are related to design. What do you so, mean for example, uh, so like coffee shops and bars and restaurants. So mm -hmm. uh, I have, I've, I've a very small collection because I've only just started. But for example, you go to Heathrow Airport, Terminal 4, Departure Lounge. You, the restaurant there is called The Curator. Oh, of course. Okay. Yeah. I, don't know if you've I mean, seen I don't that. know this one in particular, but I know what you're talking about now. And then you go to the coffee shop in Terminal 5, and uh, the, it's called The Commissioner. Okay. Uh-huh. Around the corner, there's another coffee shop <laughs> called The Studio. <laughs> so it's like everyone likes the idea of creativity. Mm -hmm. Of course they do. And now that's becoming coffee shops, hairdressers, clothing brands. And, and I think graphic design is, is definitely part of that. Uh, so, of course, everyone is much more visually literate, which is a good thing. But also there is the counter argument to that. Whereas then your clients might have too much of an opinion. You know, that does happen. And of course that... that that's always happened, but I think, you know, because, uh, you know, someone's read, read, read a book on typography or, or looked at a kind of TED talk on <laughs> typefaces, that you can have an opinion. And everyone's entitled to their opinion. Um, so there is the kind of de-skilling, I think, of graphic design. A lot of people think graphic design maybe won't exist in... Uh, a few years because um, you know everyone can just do it themselves so there, there, there is so you're designing systems you're designing frameworks mm -hmm. and for automization which certain things like you know typesetting boring books uh, will definitely has definitely kind of almost disappeared mm -hmm. uh, through technology and automization whereas now yeah it's more about an antidote to that I want to talk just a bit about your teaching. Oh, yeah. You have this project, the Typography Summer School. Yes. Um, which you've been leading since 2008? 2010. 2010. Yeah, so in eight years. And this is, a, this is an annual project. You teach a group of graphic design students, uh, presumably in a way that um, they wouldn't have experienced in a regular school. 
yeah. what actually goes on there? What kind of uh, agenda are you bringing to this project and how has it changed over the years? So it started, really, it started uh, with a frustration of seeing lots of students uh, come out of art school without any, well, not any skills, but, you know, especially typography. So people would do graphic design, but they wouldn't really, they'd be scared of typography. And I really thought to myself, well, if I got a week with some students in a room, I'm sure I could teach them some stuff. That was my kind of premise <laughs> and then I, I and I suppose I also got thought I, I was also thinking that you know at the time 2010 you know it's huge there was this sort of explosion of you know fees of courses of class numbers and I thought you know I'd go to some places and do a, do, do a couple of days teaching there'd be like 120 students and I'd be like hey I went to Reading and there was only 22 and we had like a full-time tutor <laughs> I want well, can't shouldn't the students what would it be like if they had that uh. and then I also thought that you know students were making work specific to their college so I'll be like well, what happens if you get someone from Ravensbourne with someone from Reading to someone from St Martin's someone from Kenwell just put them all in a room together what would happen uh. so that was the kind of idea and what would happen if then a tutor came for the whole day and then what would happen if it was an antidote to, you know, the corporatization of education and the business model of education, which, you know, we're all part of. If we work at a university, we are part of that machine, of that kind of, you know, soulless uh, teaching experience and learning experience. So it was a really experiment to see what would happen and who would apply and whether it would work and uh yeah the teaching model has sort of changed a bit you know it's changed from like initially it was live projects so you know you'd have a proper client that the client would come in at the end of the week and the students would present okay. and work to it and um i think over time it's sort of changed where that's just become a too much work to do too much too much to, to sort of physically gather six live projects every year to, to get from clients uh, to be something a bit more concentrated where you know now I do projects where one's very very tight it's almost a bit like one is very boring mm -hmm. you know the, the idea of you know, really looking at detailed typography rigorous text setting and then there's a break in the middle on a Wednesday so a small one-day project and then the next project something very you know kind of expanded and you know type design and type design is becoming part of typography and you know so it's it's this now it's this kind of uh, contrast between being very detailed which I really believe in all my work so you you know even the shonky catalog you might look at it and go hey it's very wacky but the details and the typesetting is still very very rigorous so it's not just wacky and crazy, it's actually this kind of double edge, knowingly wrong or whatever you call it, uh, to something that is quite expressive and creative. Because I think that, you know, students want to be creative, they want to be expressive and they kind of get hemmed in uh, by not being allowed to be. So it's sort of evolved over time. And, uh, you know, the American one is run by... Um, well, they, they're run by another studio with me called Other Means that become kind of my friends, I suppose, over the time. Uh, they take a lead on it and I teach on it every year. So it's, uh, and I suppose it's a, a, what people learn is they learn connections, they learn networks, they just get a different experience, a different educational experience. And I do think being three years at one place just becomes... It's nice that you can call a university a home and you know you know where the printer is and the secretary, but you do sometimes get in a bit of a rut, I think. And just one week of just thinking about other things, being exposed to other people is, I think, invaluable. You know, I think that's what people get out of it. Pleasure, thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Scaffold. The show is produced by me, Matthew Blunderfield, 
and the theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park. Additional music this week is by the legendary Raymond Scott. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Fraser Muggeridge, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.